You are so blessed to have the worship team that you have here at this church. I travel a lot of places and I speak in a lot of different churches. Let me just tell you, it ain't always like this. I'll just put it to you that way, okay? There's an energy and an authenticity and a love that is clear uh, and an excellence that is clear from, from what happens here. And it is so great to be with you. My name is Tim Jacobs. And if you have a Bible, turn to Psalm chapter 13. And as was mentioned, I'm with the Evangelical Free Church of America, which is a technically a denomination of which your church is a part. I live in Litchfield Park, so about, you know, a couple hours due south, just kind of around those mountains there, but in the West Valley of the Phoenix area. And a couple of things, so I just—this is my— uh, this is my family here, um, and uh, so I got my wife, our three children, and so again, we live in Litchfield Park, Arizona. Those people on the end, they didn't photobomb. Those are my parents. They live about a mile away, and uh, so we just, we have a great relationship with them. Um, our district, I'm, I'm what you call a district superintendent, so this is our district, about seven states, and um, that we have about 200 congregations or so that, that we work with, and here is our team. I always love to show a picture of our team, because when you think of denominational workers, you know, fun people don't usually come to mind. You know, you're more, more likely to think of a mortician as fun than you are a denominational worker. But we have a fantastic team, and a lot of people ask, you know, what do you guys even do? What do denominations or, like, district kind of people even do? And really, more than anything else, we're not the church, but we help the church, and we help the church in three ways. First of all, by building and strengthening leaders. So here's a picture of a, a pastor gathering and of a bunch of AZ, or Arizona pastors. Scott wasn't able to make it that day, but he has been with us in the past before, just encouraging each other, talking about issues and problems. And uh, here's another group of pastors and leaders as well. Have them all over the place, coming together, convening. We also help churches plant new churches. So here's Bill White with our church planning director, Dean Maeda. He's planning a church church in Madeira, which is south of Tucson, and um, it's a great church plant. Here's another just group of, again, church planters that are praying for each other, uh, commissioning a guy to go out, and so there's a lot of activity that's happening there. And then finally, we help churches reach all of the people around them. We have a lot of changing demographics. So, you know, here's, here's a bunch of us in El Paso, and we were a part of a, uh, an, a, a, an experience that went down. We met with the Border Patrol, really looked at the immigration issue and how can the church help um, with the immigration issue in, that's happening, you know, in every part of our district, certainly. And then over here, we have a bunch of our Spanish-speaking pastors that we invested in to train them in theology. Many are bivocational, and so to help them get theological training. And so when you, when you guys as a church are partnering with us, those are just a few of the things that you're doing. And it's happening and has a great effect beyond uh, just simply the four walls of your church. And so thank you for that. And you know, it's funny because— um, today we're going to talk about patience. This is the third time I preached here. Last time I preached, Scott said, Pastor Scott said, Tim, can you preach on the Old Testament book of Zephaniah? And I was like, you know, friends don't ask friends to preach on Zephaniah. But, you know, it worked out okay. And then this time I thought, well, surely the topic will be easier. And he said, Tim, can you, can you please preach on patience? I was like, really? Patience? I told my 15-year-old daughter about that, and, and she said, uh, you are not certified 
to preach on that topic. And she's right. And the temptation would be today to kind of talk to us about, you know, kind of what I might call micro-level patience. You know, not getting, not getting impatient in the, in the line at the grocery store or not having a road rage incident out here on the highway because of the traffic from all of the desert people that have come up and ruined your town for the July 4th holiday. I get it. I'm one of them. And so, but, but, you know, and we could talk about, you know, kind of anger management skills in the, in the micro, but I don't know if that's necessarily what we want to do, because I don't think that's really the capturing the essence of what the series has been about. So I want to talk to you about a different type of patience, because you've been on a series called The Fruit of the Spirit which are qualities that happen in a person's life as they are keeping in step with the Spirit of God. Like a military procession, your life is in rhythm. It's, in, it's along with the beat of the movement of God in your life. And so you become a person who is guided and in sync with the very Spirit of the living God who's moving with you and directing your steps. And it's a powerful thing, and certain things happen in your life over time as you're doing that. Love and joy and peace. And now, patience. And so today, you know, I want to talk about what that really looks like. The word patience is a word in the original language. The etymology is the word macrothumia. And it basically, at its core, means long-suffering. And so it's the ability to endure pain over a long period of time. But a few other definitions that I think are pertinent. For example, remaining tranquil while awaiting an outcome. You're able to do that. Or another way of saying it would be bearing up under provocation. So we're not talking about, you know, maybe an instantaneous thing, but more of a long-term kind of um, low-grade endurance over a period of time. And so the thing is this. You can have the most mellow temperament in the world, and you can be somebody that never gets rattled, you know, when your Amazon package is six weeks late because of the supply chain shortage, or the little beach ball on your Mac just keeps spinning and spinning and spinning. And you, you may have no problem with that at all, but every single one of us at some point or another has asked a two-word question. How long? How long? Kids ask this question all the time, right? How long until we get there? Five minutes, right? How long until we get to eat? How long until, you know, Uncle Bill leaves? Um, how long until, until school gets out? And what do we always say? Have patience. Because in our minds, it's just a small window of time, but for them, it feels like an eternity. And so David is writing in a psalm, and he asks the question, how long? And he's just honestly asking God, and so as we read this, see if you can identify with what he says in Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? What do you see here? 
you see that David is caught in this protracted period of waiting. He was probably facing oppression from an enemy like King Saul or, or someone like that. But do you hear the weariness in his voice? He's tired. He's tired. He feels like God is distant and hiding from him. And he's got all this internal strife going on. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? Have you ever laid awake at night because your mind is going and going and you get no mental peace? You can't quiet your thoughts. How long? How long will my enemy triumph over me? He's in a dark place. And you know, one of the things about, you don't, maybe you don't have an enemy that's pursuing you like David did, but isn't it one of the hardest things when you feel like there's injustice that's gone, or injustice that's gone unpunished? And maybe something happened to you and someone took something from, some, from, from you or, or they swindled you or took advantage of you or abused you in some way, and it's like they got away with it. The jury sided with them. And you're sitting in that, and you're going, will anyone ever know? Will there ever be any justice? Or will I just sit here with my, my enemy triumphing over me? And it's a terrible place to be, and it feels like it goes on forever. And this is what David is dealing with. And so if you were to write this psalm in your own words, how would you have written it? How long, Lord, will the loneliness last? How long will I not be on speaking terms with my child? How long will I have to live with this chronic pain? How long until we can have a baby? How long will I have to sit in this season of grief? How long until you answer my prayer? These are real issues, and they plague us, and so we wait. And we, we wait in, in silence and we wait in weariness, and we wait in confusion. We wait in darkness. And so David captures this in, in really well in the next verse, and he says, Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. He's pleading with God, will you answer me? Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. Another way of saying that is like, restore the spark to my eyes. Like there's no, there's no life in me right now. Put the sparkle back in my eyes and my enemy will say I have overcome. If you don't show up, God, I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I've overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. So what's happening, there's despair. And, what, and so he starts forecasting the scenario. And that's what it can feel like when we're sitting in this place of want or need. We start, we start to get, we wrestle because we start uh, casting scenarios I, I, God doesn't show up and then I'm going to die Or this is going to happen and my enemy is going to triumph And nothing's going to work out And it's going to be like this forever It's a terrible place to be And it would be the end by the way He would be right about this There would be no reason to To have tranquility while awaiting an outcome There'd be no reason to bear up Under provocation If it were not for the Next word of the next verse Because the next word of the next verse Signals a change It, it, it give, brings hope It shows us something that's going to happen And it's this word right here But All of this happens And you think it'd be the end But And then he says something very important I trust In you In your unfailing love My heart rejoices In your salvation now, what's really important about this, this word love, is the Hebrew word hesed. And it doesn't just mean love like I love my car 
or I love living in Prescott, or I love my dog. It's a stronger word than that that has to do with the idea of loving kindness. That God doesn't just love you like, you know, I love you, like a, like a relative. But he is aware of your situation, and he cares about it. It affects him. It matters to him what you are going through. Because at his core, God is kind. A lot of people don't believe that. A lot of people don't understand that. And, and, and we go through times in life, let's be honest, where that's not top of mind. God's kindness. Uh, God's silent. God doesn't care. God, God is mad at me, and so he's, he's moved away from me. But he says God is kind. And so the reason he says this is David, David says this because it, 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 he doesn't feel it at the moment. He doesn't feel it in the moment. So he's saying, okay, God, I... I know it's there. So throughout this series, I think that the big idea that Pastor Scott has said, which is, you know, you really have a smart, a very smart, wise, caring, um, intelligent, and effective pastor, I think, in Scott. And I, I really believe that. I've just had the chance to get to know him. And he's very concerned that you see things accurately. And I love the statement that he's made as your big idea that the fruit of the Spirit are not objectives we achieve, but outcomes we experience. So it's like a tree. So if your life is like a tree, someone walks up and over time they look at your life like a tree and they go, wow, that's a huge patience that's growing on the branch of your life. I wonder what kind of soil you are planted in to have such a magnificent fruit coming from the tree of your life. It doesn't happen like that because I wonder what the soil is like because the conditions have been very hard. The environment has been rough. How does that happen? So I want to give you, an, uh, just from the text here and a few other things that David is going to say, I want to offer you two things this morning, the answer to the question, how do you deal with the how long? So I just kind of grabbed that phrase, how long, and, and, and just kind of use it as a, as a noun, you know? Took, t- taking the question, turning into a noun. So maybe you're in a how long right now. Maybe you're, if you're on, you and I would really talk, you'd say, Tim, I'm in a place where... I just don't know how long this is going to last. And I'm in the season of how long, and I'm, I'm waiting, and I'm trying, and I'm getting tired, and this is hard. How do I grow this beautiful fruit of patience on the tree of my life? And so I just, from what we just read, I want to give you two things. Patience during that how long, it comes from believing two things. It comes from embracing and, and understanding and connecting to and putting in the soil of your life two things. And the first thing is this, that God's loving kindness brings significance to the waiting. That because of God, his existence, his character, his nature, and the fact that of this hesed, this loving kindness, that means that because of that, there is significance to the period that you're in now. That this time that seems meaningless matters. It is important. He says, I trust in your unfailing love. And this is one of the differences between walking with the Spirit and walking with, apart from the Spirit. Because he starts off by saying, God, will you hide your face from me? But then he corrects himself by saying, that's not who God is. Wait a second. That's not who God is. And so we, one of the things that we know about God is he exists as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we kind of get the Father part, and we kind of get the Son part, because we just celebrated communion and we understand the work of Christ. The Holy Spirit is where we tend to kind of, it's fuzzy. 
you know, un- our understanding of the Holy Spirit. But who the Holy Spirit is, is he's described in several ways. First of all, as a breath, as, as wind or breath. In fact, in the, in the original language, it's pneuma, so where we get our word pneumonia from. It's, it's like breath. So, so the Spirit of God breathes life into the nostrils of man in Genesis. Or Jesus says, the Spirit of God blows like a wind. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. Right? So that's who the Spirit of God is. But the Spirit of God is also referred to as a fire who guides us and warms our souls and illuminates the path forward for us. He is the one who regenerates us. By the way, it's the Holy Spirit of God who made the first move on you. You did not choose him. He chose you. A dead person cannot bring themselves back to life. It was the Holy Spirit that brought you in your state of spiritual deadness and darkness. He was the one that brought you back to life and regenerated you and opened up your eyes. And so he has always been in your corner. He has always guided you. He has always been there for you. He has been there for you when you close your eyes at night and have no control over yourself at all. He is watching over you. And so what David does is he takes two competing thoughts and he runs them up against each other. And the first is, my life is meaningless and it's going nowhere and I don't know what's happening and I'm in serious trouble. And then the other one is, God is kind. And because God is kind, that must mean he's up to something good for me. That must mean there's something more than just what I can see right now. You know, it's funny, I mentioned my 15-year-old a little while ago. And uh, when she was young, she had... We, she kept telling us she couldn't see very well, and we just thought she was complaining, you know? Like, you know, come on, and, and, and like, couldn't read the chalkboard at school or whatever, or the whiteboard at school. And we just thought, ah, it's, you know, she's making an excuse. And we just didn't think that big, it was that big of a deal. And I remember we used to go on bike rides, and she would, when she would ride behind me, and as I started pulling ahead a little bit, she'd start getting really upset, and she's like, Dad, Dad, you know, wait for me, wait for me. And she'd start crying and everything. And, and I didn't realize until later on that as I was pulling ahead of her, she just couldn't see me anymore because her eyes were just not good at all. And I just, I just faded into the ether, and she thought I was gone. This is a little kid. It's really sad when we found that out. And finally, we took her to the eye doctor, and we're like, yeah, she needs some pretty strong prescription glasses, and we had to apologize to her and stuff. Um, that was a humble moment. You were right. But, but I think that's sometimes the, the way it is, right? And, but here's the thing. I was always there. I was always leading her. The issue wasn't that I was gone. The issue was she just couldn't see me right then. Right then you know? But see, when you sit in that moment, this is why, you know, one of the things we have to do in the, in the, in the moment, part of walking with God is saying, I, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord, like David said. So, for example, the same David in Psalm 27, 4 says, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. See, there's a priority of saying, my mind space, my orientation to life, the moments I spend, I want to be in the presence of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. That's where I want to be. That's where my priorities are going to lie. Now, everybody knows, you know, if you want to be a, a great athlete, right? Somebody says, well, I want to be like a pro tennis player or a professional basketball player or an MMA fighter or whatever. 
what everybody, everybody wants that because they want to, they, they, they watch on, on TV the championship, right? The, the, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the whatever the, in, in the, each individual sport, whatever that championship is. And they see the people at the top of their game and they're like, I want to be like that person. But what they don't see is that life for pro athletes and anybody that does anything great is lived in the mundane. If you're going to be a professional tennis player, yeah, you might get to, you know, the, the top of your, your uh, I don't even know what it's called, but, but uh, if you're the top of your game. But you know what that means? That for a lot of your life, you're just hitting a ball against a wall every day, 500 times, 1,000 times, every single day. And it feels boring. And it feels like you're not getting anywhere. And no one is celebrating you. No one is going, wow, you're so good. And so many times you, the, the days aren't that exciting. But the only way to become a pro, the only way to get to a place is the, the, of, of, of excellence or, or get to a goal or a destination is just to do the same thing over and over and over. And so what we don't see so often in lives, and we know social media is a part of this, and all the highlight reels from everything that we're shown, and all over the world we can see the greatest moments of individual lives at our fingertips. And I think somehow what we do is then we compress all those things, and then we think, well, why isn't that happening to me? And what they don't show you is the stuff you don't want to watch, which is the over and over and over and over boring, mundane, you know, predictable, nothing fancy. Just practice, 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 practice. Following the path, sticking to the plan. And it's hard in those moments. That's when most of these pro athletes say that they want to quit. It's not when they get to the top, it's on the way when it's like, right? So the word disciple, word follower, is the word mathetes. It's where we get our word mathematics from. It's like you're following, you're following, you're following. And it's not glamorous. But it's how you get from one way, one place to the other. The other thing I want to show you is this. Oh, you know what? Actually, I don't have it on the screen. But listen to this, because this is very important. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 17, 18 says, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So that for our light and momentary afflictions are, are creating for us a weight of glory. So what, what you don't realize, the reason why I was bringing up this example of the mundane is, is in those moments of, of, the, of the how long as you're following and no one sees and no one cares, what's happening is you're growing stronger. You're getting to become more like the person God made you to be. That's what's happening in those moments. And you don't see it. You don't feel it. It is like watching a tree grow. And for some reason in the desert, if you plant certain types of trees, they grow incredibly fast. I can't explain it. But you plant a little tree, and it doesn't say, look at me. And all of a sudden you look back and go, wow, it's this huge thing. It didn't announce its growth. You can't hear it. You can barely even see it. It's just there. And so it's in the mundane, day in, day out, no one's looking that your life is beginning to grow more and more and conforming with the, uh, the image of God, with how you were created to live. But not only that, also, not only is it, do we sit there and say, okay, um, 
as, I, as I'm growing in my life, uh, not only do I, is God's kindness bringing significance to my life now, but God's saving grace brings victory in the end. See, so what he says is, my heart rejoices in your salvation. It rejoices. So he, saw, he, he first talks about the fact that, God, you are kind. You at your core, God, are kind. And so because of that, nothing is wasted because you're interacting with me. You know my situation. You love me. But not only that, you're a God of salvation. And salvation means what? Deliverance. Rescuing. I think that this, you cannot capture this properly until we really have a, a, a well-developed idea of resurrection. So what I, the thing that bothers me a lot of times, like in churches, is we, we talk, like we, we have Easter, and Easter's wonderful, and we talk about resurrection on Easter, and then we don't really seem to talk about it very much after that. And yet, when so much of Scripture is looking ahead towards this period of time when God really will bring the victory. I was listening to a podcast, and the guy was saying, you know, I, I think it'd be a good idea if we went back to putting cemeteries in, in churches. I don't know if you've ever seen, like, in the South, there's a lot of cemeteries. These little churches, they have cemeteries. And I, I always think that was kind of weird, you know? Because, I don't know, I always think of jokes, like, oh, it must be a pretty dead congregation that you have, or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, and so you just think, why would you, that's a great way to in, invite new people. Here, come to our church, and there's a bunch of dead people laying all, all over the place. But he makes the point that if we had cemeteries in churches, and it'd be kind of hard to do it here, but if you had a building with a cemetery, that every time you came to church, you would be reminded, oh, I remember when that person was here, and that's my grandfather, that's this person. And where they are is where you're headed. And it would kind of root you in history. It would root you in what's real. Because without resurrection or the understanding of it, our judgment is very clouded because we think, well, this is it, but this is not it. And that's what's kind of strange. And so churches with cemeteries were just a visual reminder of that, that there were people that were just like you who had, go, who had finally found the what? The victory over all of the how long. But that had actually happened. But we want it to happen here on earth. But it doesn't. And this is why I think it's really powerful if we listen to what Job says. And uh, in, um, this is amazing because you know the story of Job. Most of you know the story of Job. Went through one of the most brutal things you could possibly go through. But look what he says. And this is pre-Christ, by the way. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then from my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall be behold, and not another. So, I shall see for myself, my eyes shall behold, and not another. Paul says this, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await, and that word await is eagerly, like you're waiting so bad, you know, you're, you're really hungry, and you're waiting for the cookies to come out of the oven, or you're waiting for the steak to be done, and you're like, I eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so the older you get, the more you need this. Because if you're running, you think, I'm running out of time, I'm running out of time. You're not running out of time. And I think we deceive ourselves when we think that. You're running out of time here, but you're not running out of time. It is only the beginning. And for some reason, we just have this, yeah, but we don't understand that when Jesus came, 
His resurrection was to show us that just as we have borne the image of the Son of Man, so, or uh, the man of dust, so we shall also born the, bear the image of the man of heaven. Just as we bore the image of Adam, so we shall also bear the image of Jesus. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I was talking to my wife about this as we were like, you know, the older you get, the more you realize like your little bucket list may not happen. And yeah, you know what? Without resurrection, without Jesus, you have no reason to be patient at all. Like, you better get on it. Because your hourglass is running out of sand quickly, my friend. And you want to get all that stuff done, you better go, because this is it for you. This is all the time you got. And this is, this is a pretty good situation compared to what's going to happen next. I'm just being honest. I'm, just, I'm not trying to be mad. I'm just being honest. So enjoy it while you can. But if you're a believer in Christ, you're just getting started. You know, and like we have to incorporate this into the, into the whole essence of our faith. Like, no, I'm just, getting, I'm just getting started. Resurrection is just around the corner. And so how does that help me now? Because I know, and by the way, with the resurrection comes what? A judgment. That person hurt me and they got away with it. And there's so much anger and bitterness that, ex- that exists. And so we're in that how long? How long until you reward, or until you punish injustice and you reward those who are just? How long? You know what? It's coming. And God can do it a lot better than you can. So don't try to judge yourself. Don't try to be, don't try to take that judgment on yourself. Um, God will do it to that person in a much more comprehensive way. And that's the thing we have to understand, right? Either Jesus pays for sin or we pay for sin. One way or another, the injustice that was done to you will be paid for. Either Jesus pays or that person pays. But God is the one who adjudicates that. And that is coming. In fact, even God himself is, is in Scripture is seen as patient. Isn't that weird? God is patient because he's withheld judgment. He's withheld judgment, but it's coming. And so you can take in that how long, how long. You know what? God's got that. And there is this idea, you know, um, finally, this is what he says. Oh yeah, this verse 2, Micah chapter 4, this is a picture of the millennial kingdom. This is coming someday. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts is spoken. I love that image. Because you're in this period of how long, and you have all this tension going on. And David, he says, I rejoice in your salvation. I rejoice in your deliverance because I know someday, as the prophet said, there'll be a time when you will be able to finally sit and rest. And you won't have to look over your shoulder anymore about who's coming to get you. You can finally rest and you can finally sit and breeze under that tree, under that vine, under that fig tree with the ocean breeze and the gentle wind and the cool of the air and no one will ever make you afraid that's why we hold on to scripture because these are the kinds of things that are promised for you they're promised for you and so David at the very end he says this here he is in the middle of the how long and he says I will sing the Lord's praise he has been good to me. What does that mean? You know what's interesting? The Hebrew word for future, the Hebrew word for future is the word behind. Isn't that weird? And the idea is, if you've ever been in a rowboat, 
When you're rowing a boat, what's happening? You're looking that way, but you're going that way. And so the understanding of the word future is that I know what's going to happen in the future based on what I can see here. So as you're rowing a boat, you can see how close you are getting to the shore. You can see the things that happen, and that's the best predictor of where you're headed. And so what David says at the end, he's in this how long, how long, how long, I will sing God's praise. Why? Because in the past, he's been good. My wife has a beautiful saying. We, we, we planted a church 20 years ago, and it was really hard, and it was just all kinds of craziness. And there'd be times I was like, man, what are we doing? And she would say, she would say, you know what, Tim? God's brought us this far. It was really wise for a young person to say at the time. God's brought us this far. He didn't take you all the way out here to bury you. He didn't bring you all this way to let you go. And then we could examine data points. We didn't think that was going to work, and it did. You thought you were dead at that moment, and you weren't. You thought this was a horror. Remember those rapids back there? Remember the the terrible weather? Remember when it was really dark in that spot? And you thought you weren't going to make it, and look, you did. So what does that tell you about where you're going? You're going to be all right. You're going to be all right. So when you incorporate these things into your life, you act in a way that produces patience. So last year, this, my friend, if you can still call him that after what he, uh, what he said, he called me up, he said, hey, Tim, we should run one of those ultra marathon races. And I was like, why? He goes, no, no, we should do it, we should do it. And I'd never done anything like that before. And so we trained and trained and trained and we went out and we did this race and, and uh, it was up in Zion. And the, so, so we did what was called a 50K. And that sounds impressive, except that when you actually get to the race, you realize that was the smaller of the races that were going on. So there was the 50K, which is about 31 miles. And then they had a 100K, which is uh, 62 miles. And then they had a 100-miler, which is, you know, 100 miles. And um, so we went and we did this 50K, it was really long and horrible and awful, and you know. But we we finished and we went back to the to the hotel. I'm dead and delirious. And the next morning we had to go back to the finish line on the way home because I there was a, a um, I left a drop bag at one of the aid stations and they hadn't brought it back. And so I went to to go pick it up. So we go and we stop. Now when we get there, it's the next day, and when we get there, we realize that the hundred milers are still coming across the finish line. They've been running for thirty hours. 30 hours. One of them was this woman. I'm not kidding. She had to be like 65 or 70 years old. All right. She looked like a piece of beef jerky with shorts, you know. And I don't mean that bad, you know. Just kind of like, how do you mean that good? Um, but, you know, she's all sinewy and stuff, right? I mean, just incredible, you know. Incredible shape. And she just crossed the finish line. And I see this woman. And I, like, ho- I can't walk, and I kind of hobble over to her. And I just said, congratulations. You just ran a hundred miles. Like, that's an amazing accomplishment. And she says, yeah, you know, um, I almost didn't make it. She said, I was 80 miles in, and I found myself in the medical tent. And I was done. I had nothing left. And I was about to pull myself from the race. And I would have done it. Except all of a sudden, this guy comes over, 
puts his hand on my shoulder and says, come with me. So I went. She met me. Some of you right now, you're hearing what I'm saying. Tim, I feel like I'm 80 miles in. And you're in a tent. And you're tired. And you're saying, I didn't think it was going to be this long. I didn't think it was going to be this hard. I never felt so shattered in my life. And if you're there, you know what I'm talking about. If you're there, you know. It's a different level. It's a different level of waiting. It's a different level of isolation. It's a different level of fear. It's a different level of fatigue. It's a different level of, I'm done. But if that's you, I came here to tell you that just as you're ready to pull yourself from the race and throw it all away and give up and say, forget it, God became God joined himself forever with us. He walked among us. He became one of us. And right now, he's coming over to you. And he knows you're tired. He knows you're broken. He knows that things didn't work out the way you thought that they would. And it's getting pretty rough out there. With a hand on your shoulder, He's just simply saying to you, come with me. Come with me. Follow me. Walk with me. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. Let's pray together. God, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, if there's some here today who are like, yeah, I I hear this, but I want to be patient. I want to endure, but it's hard. I pray that your spirit would be so near to them at this moment. That the fruit of the spirit would grow beautifully in the branches of their life. Patient, endurance, the waiting, the mundane. You are the supernatural force that breathes life into us and sustains us. If there's anyone here today that, that doesn't, hasn't experienced that, doesn't know you, I pray that you would draw them to you right now. Open their eyes and they would say, yes, Jesus, I need you. I'm in that place. I'm at the end. I, I'm done pretending. I'm done acting like I can do it on my own. I'm done with the games and thinking that I'm a great person, that I have so much to offer you, God. I got nothing. And so I'm surrendering to you. And God, I will ask you how long when it's hard. And I will sit sometimes in silence, but you know what? I will trust in your loving kindness. And I will rejoice. And I will sing. I will sing your praises when I'm in my rowboat. I will sing your salvation in the middle of the how long. That's what I will do. In Jesus' name.